0: you do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. I'm John Dickerson in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation,
1: Russia's assault on Ukraine grinds on into a second month with no end in sight. And will the January 6th committee subpoena the wife of a Supreme Court justice? The Russian military has leveled cities and killed thousands over the last few weeks, and now announces a new phase, a possible retreat from Ukraine's capital city of Kyiv, where its advances have stalled. President Biden spent three days in Europe, rallying NATO, visiting troops and refugees, all while taking aim at Vladimir Putin. For God's sake, this man cannot remain Wow. The White House said President Biden was not announcing a new effort to remove Putin, but if that was muddled, the president was clear about one thing.
2: Don't even think about coming on one single inch of NATO territory.
1: We'll get the latest reporting from the region. And we'll get analysis from former CIA acting director Michael Morrell and our David Martin. We'll also get insight from the former U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. And we'll talk with Will Hurd, a former CIA officer who served in Congress for six years. Then, new text messages reveal how the wife of a Supreme Court justice aggressively lobbied the Trump White House to overturn the 2020 election. We'll talk to the reporters who broke the story. CBS News' Robert Costa and The Washington Post's Bob Woodward. And we'll hear from Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, a member of the committee investigating the January 6th assault on the Capitol. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. President Biden touched down early this morning from his trip through Europe, where he made the continued case to Western allies for assistance to Ukraine and sanctions against Russia. Nevertheless, this morning, Ukrainian President Zelensky accused the West of lacking courage, making yet another exasperated plea for more fighter jets and tanks. We want to begin in Lviv, Ukraine, where Russian rockets rained down yesterday, just a few hundred miles away from where President Biden was speaking in Poland. CBS News foreign
3: correspondent MTS Tayab is there. John, good morning. Well, here in Lviv's historic city center, and life really does seem to be returning back to normal. But life is anything but following those Russian strikes on a fuel depot just two miles from here. Now, almost immediately after the attack, we could see dark plumes of smoke rising into the sky and later learned at least five people were injured. Now, Russia's defense ministry has confirmed it used long-range and cruise missiles in the assault, saying its target was a plant being used to repair anti-aircraft systems, radar stations and tanks. Now, the missile strike comes less than a day after Russian generals said the Kremlin would be, quote, shifting focus from its ground offensive aimed at Kyiv to instead prioritizing what Moscow calls the liberation of the contested eastern Donbass region. And while it doesn't yet look as if Vladimir Putin is changing his approach to the war on Ukraine, What's clear are the Kremlin's military miscalculations, as Ukrainian forces continue to fight back with an intensity few expected. Now here in Lviv, which has seen two other strikes nearby in as many weeks, it's been something of a sanctuary for the millions of Ukrainians fleeing violence. And this Russian missile strike is causing serious concern that it could impact the humanitarian support that so many Ukrainians have received if Russia's attacks here in Lviv continue. John. MTS, thank you.
1: CBS News foreign correspondent Deborah Pata is in the Ukrainian capital of Kyiv with this report. What Russia
4: lacks in apparent military strategy, it makes up for in boastful videos like this one, claiming to show off their cruise missiles heading to Zitomir, 100 miles west of Kyiv. But for Ukrainians at the receiving end of this constant bombardment from the sky... It's hell on earth. The coastal city of Mariupol has been decimated, reduced to twisted skeletons of steel and the hollowed out shells of apartment blocks. Hasty burials of the dead provide fleeting dignity. The 100,000 people still trapped there have no electricity, very little food, and spend their nights in icy basements. Fleeing the city carries a deadly risk many cars come under fire. Victoria Modinska defied is. death, escaping her with her man. family to the town of Brovary, just outside the capital. All she has left of their life before the war are precious photos and videos stored on her phone. The town is very destroyed. Nothing. I think... nothing left. Seven-year-old Masha remembers everything. And were you scared? hmm I'm sorry. And while Mariupol has borne the brunt of the Russian invasion, it's not safe anywhere. In the north, residents in Kharkiv brace for the worst, sandbagging beloved monuments to protect against the bombing. Ukrainians have put up a far tougher resistance than Russia expected, determined and defiant. But Kharkiv has every reason to be worried. A nuclear research facility has come under fire. Ukraine's nuclear watchdog says the fighting makes it impossible to assess the damage. John?
1: Deborah Pataforis for us in Kyiv. Thank you. For a detailed breakdown of where the fight in Ukraine stands at the moment and where it might go next, we'd like to welcome CBS News national security correspondent David Martin and Michael Morrell, former acting and deputy director of the CIA and a national security contributor here at CBS. Good morning to you both. Thank you for being here. David, I want to start with you. Where are we in this invasion at the end of this week?
2: Well, we've heard what the uh, Russian Ministry of Defense have said about uh, prioritizing eastern Ukraine. You have to consider the source there. They haven't been a stellar source of uh, truth. But on the ground, they are seeing some evidence that the units that were the Russian units that were advancing on Kyiv have started to dig into defensive positions, basically hunker down against all these Ukrainian counterattacks. And at the same time, there's an increased level of bombing in eastern Ukraine. Now, that does not mean that Vladimir Putin has given up on taking the capital of Kiev. What I think it means is they've got to find a battle plan that works. Right. Right. Their original battle plan of advancing on these multiple fronts, north, uh, east and south, just didn't work. So maybe they're going to try one front at a time here. But at the same time that they are supposedly prioritizing, they are also sending in reinforcements for the first time into ukraine and they are keeping up this uh, bombardment of the cities look we we began this war by overestimating the russians we shouldn't underestimate them now
1: right mike pick up on that stalled maybe just to reload
5: so phase one for me was the blitzkrieg right to kiev and replacing the government with a puppet government and Ukraine becomes a vassal state. The Russians lost phase one. We are now in phase two, in my view. And phase two is digging in defensively, as David said, fortifying so that you protect yourself from these Ukrainian attacks. They're actually laying, the the Russians are laying mines, which is a defensive maneuver. And they want to be in these fortifications so that they can lob their mortars and their rockets and their missiles at Ukrainian cities Mm -hmm. in an attempt to break the Ukrainian will so that that I think they can continue to advance. That's what they're trying to do now. And as David said, don't underestimate them. Right. right?
1: David. is there any reassessment from the Pentagon or even the Russians that the Ukrainians have put up more of a fight than they suggested? As you, as you mentioned, they're digging in because the Ukrainians have had these counteroffensives. Is there any way that the, that the NATO allies and others who are trying to help the Ukrainians can take advantage of this new position from the Russians?
2: Well, to begin with, I think uh, everybody underestimated both the will and the skill of the Ukrainians. They have taken these weapons, these anti-tank weapons, these anti-aircraft weapons. And they are simply making better use of their systems than the Russians are making of theirs. They are outclassing them on the battlefield. But there's a second war going on here, which is the attacks on the cities. What Mike mentioned about trying to break the will of the Ukrainian people. And it's really, uh, the outcome may well depend on, on uh, which happens first, whether the uh, Ukrainians force the uh, Russians into a flat-out stall on the battlefield, or whether these bombardments break the will of the uh, Ukrainian people.
1: So, Mike, what David's suggesting here is it's Vladimir Putin's pain threshold. How high is that, or is it the the survival instincts of the Ukrainians? So how long do you think this
5: takes? So, So we should not underestimate the willingness of Russia to accept pain, right? Um, they've shown over their history that they are willing to accept a lot of pain to gain a victory, right? The second Chechen war, the combat phase lasted 10 months and then the insurgency phase lasted eight years. In Syria, um, their attacks on cities in Syria um, took a long time. So they're, they're willing to take the time here in a, in a way that I don't think we understand in the West.
1: So if they're willing to take a long time, give me a sense of some of the pressures that puts on this coalition that President Biden is trying to
5: put on. So so everybody's facing pressure, right? So Putin's facing the pressure of economic pain at home, long lines, empty shelves, looks like 1980s again in Moscow. He's facing the pain of dead soldiers coming home. Russian mothers don't like that. So that's his pain. The Ukrainian pain is, is the death and destruction of their country. Um, the Western pain is the sanctions. They can't do business with Europe. You know, I talk to a lot of companies, both U.S. companies and foreign companies, and their question to me is when when are we going to be able to get back to doing business here? Right. So there's that pressure. And then there's the pressure of the costs to consumers around the world in terms of wheat prices, in terms of energy prices. Right. Everybody's facing pressure here,
1: which is why Biden's over there in Europe trying to keep things together. David, uh, President Zelensky has asked for NATO help, for help from anybody—planes, tanks. Is he going to get it?
2: Well, he's not going to get the planes in the short run, um, and that's a um, just basically a risk-reward calculation that uh, NATO has made. They, they just don't believe that twenty Polish MiGs uh, in an uncertain state of repair are going to change the tide of battle, so why run the risk of escalating um, if it's not gonna make a difference? Right now, there, there are not dogfights going on over Ukraine. There are too many surface-to-air missiles for any plane to operate safely. You know, the Russians aren't really coming into Ukrainian airspace. They're attacking with uh, long-range air-launch cruise missiles from uh, Russian territory and from uh, Crimea. So the the U.S. for now is is focused on these anti-tank and anti-aircraft missiles, plus finding some high-altitude anti-aircraft missiles, which the Ukrainians know how to operate. We could give them ours, but they don't know how to operate those.
1: Mike, I want to ask you about President Biden's speech uh, in which he said that Vladimir Putin cannot remain in power. He also framed this conflict as totalitarianism versus freedom. What did you make of those two remarks?
5: So I think um, his comment that Putin um, had to go was an unforced error. Um, It makes it, it strengthens Putin at home, makes it difficult for any domestic opposition to coalesce together. And no Russian citizen, none, um, wants to be told by the leader of Russia's main enemy about what their leadership can look like and not. Um, The broader framing I worry about as well, Um, I think we should frame this narrowly. Russia out of Ukraine and impose so much pain on this man that he never thinks about doing this again. I think framing it as democracy versus autocracy drives the Chinese closer to the Russians and makes it difficult for some of our own allies who are autocrats to stand with us.
1: All right. We're going to have to end it there. Mike Murrell, thanks so much. David Martin, thanks for being with us. We'll be back in a moment. Stay with us.
6: for details that's r-a-k-u-t-e-n your cash back really adds up
7: okay picture this it's friday afternoon when a thought hits you i can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever or i can hop into my all-new hyundai santa fe and hit the road with available h-track all-wheel drive and three-row seating my whole family can head deep into the wild conquer the weekend in the all-new hyundai santa fe Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.
1: We go now to Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger. He's a member of the panel investigating the January 6th attack on the Capitol, and he's in Houston this morning. Congressman, welcome.
8: Thank you, good to be with you.
1: Let's start, before we go to the January 6th committee, let's start with Ukraine. President Zelensky called for more planes and tanks, From NATO, as you heard us just discuss, he said, I've talked to the defenders of Mariupol today. If only those who have been thinking for 31 days on how to handle hand over dozens of jets and tanks had one percent of their courage. You have advocated for a no fly zone. What's your feeling about giving planes and tanks to the Ukrainians?
8: Look, I mean, I've talked to uh, Ukrainian members of parliament, those out, you know, advocating for what's needed on the ground as well, and they say they need these. I mean, we can have the Pentagon all they want say, well, we don't think they have the pilots for the MiGs. They do. They have pilots trained and waiting. We can have the Pentagon say, well, we think this is escalatory. Well, if you don't think, you know, javelins that are killing thousands of Russian soldiers are escalatory, but then sending an airplane, You know, when frankly Ukraine has already flown some airplanes is the like escalatory thing, Uh, that's just wrong. And I think it's sending the wrong message. We have to give them everything they need to win this war because we've made it clear we're not gonna intervene directly. And I don't think we should at this point.
1: All right, we're gonna move on Congressman to the January 6th committee, Uh, Bob Costa and Bob Woodward who are both on with me a little bit later. Reported on text to the committee, this uh, that the committee has from the wife of Clarence Thomas. And I just want to read a little excerpts of them. They are to the White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, urging efforts to overthrow the election. Mrs. Thomas wrote, do not concede. And then in another, she wrote, the majority knows Biden and the left is attempting the greatest heist of our history. Why are these significant?
8: Well, look, I can't, as a member of the committee, confirm, deny the existence of those. I'll tell you, though, we have thousands of text messages from lots of people. We have a lot of documents. And we are going to, in a methodical, fact-driven way, get to the answers here. We'll we'll call in whoever we need to call in. I think the bottom line for the committee is this. Was there an effort to overturn the legitimate election of the United States? What was January 6 in relation to that? And what is the rot in our system that led to that and does it still exist today? Um, you know, with conspiracy theories as we've seen, you know, reported this idea of releasing the Kraken or that the CIA attacked the DOD or was attacked by the DOD in Germany. John, like half of the country at one point believed some of that stuff. And this is a roadmap for how to overturn a legitimately elected government. So this is important. We're going to get to the bottom of this. And as we're seeing in Ukraine, people are willing to die for democracy. We at least have to be willing to put careers on the line for the same cause.
1: So no one's to disputing the authenticity of these texts, which leads to the question, will the committee subpoena uh, Mrs. Thomas and uh, question her?
8: Look, I think, again, we want to make sure that this isn't driven, even though it's in the political realm, it's not driven by a political motivation. It's driven by facts. Um, so when it comes to any potential future calling in of Ms. Thomas, we'll, we'll take a look at, at what the evidence is and we'll make a decision and you all will know as soon as we do. What I don't want to do is get into speculating too much because I think it is important that we have answers for the American people in a factual way here.
1: You talked about rot in the system. Uh, Does the rot reach the Supreme Court?
8: Uh, Look, again, I'm not going to say that. I'm not going to say that it does or doesn't. We're just going to present the American people what the answer is. And uh, the Supreme Court handles their own ethics. They handle their own internal stuff. But what we need to do is present to the American people where they've been lied to, where they've believed lies, where there are bad actors out there, for instance, that are sympathetic to Vladimir Putin. That kind of stuff is very important so that in five or 10 years, when kids are reading in the history books about January 6th, they're not buying into any of these conspiracies. They're getting the truth.
1: What is wrong with, uh, you said the Supreme Court has its own ethics, so we'll let them handle that. Why can't a private citizen send texts, as zany as they may be, to the White House chief of staff? What's What's wrong with that?
8: Well, again, uh, we're in a position where we're not confirming or denying, you know, what's been reported uh, by Costa and Woodward. Uh, but if they're, you know, look, in, in any case, if a, if a private citizen has a conversation, of course, we have a freedom of spee- speech in this country. The question what the, for the committee is this or any exchange. Was there a conspiracy or an attempt to come up with a reason or how close did we get to overturn an election? Look, we are not, as the committee, out to... Uh, you know, to throw people in jail. We can have criminal referrals like we do against Mark Meadows because he has denied legitimate requests from Congress to come in repeatedly. So that's in DOJ. Our job is just to get answers to the American people, and then they can decide.
1: Before, uh, these texts drop off. They, they go away in December and January. Given the passion with which Mrs. Thomas was tec- texting, do you, are you confident that Meadows has handed over all of his texts?
8: I'm not confident that Meadows has handed over everything at all. I mean, he was cooperating with us for a little bit and then in an attempt to make Donald Trump happy, he stopped cooperating. Uh, We gave him plenty of space to come back to resume that. Uh, He has not. And in fact, he's waived executive privilege, you know, a thousand times by, by presenting us what he already has. So no, I'm not convinced he's handed over everything to us. And that's why it's in the DOJ's hands now. Uh, whether to prosecute him for contempt. He has contempt, not just for Congress, for his old institution of Congress and thereby for the American people. I hope DOJ does the right thing. And I hope we get all the information that the, not, it's not Congress, that the American people deserve, John, the American people deserve these answers.
1: All right, Congressman Kinzinger, thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you again. Senators are usually grouped into two categories, workhorses who make progress, but not headlines, and show horses who perform more than produce. During the confirmation hearing of Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, Senator Ben Sass introduced a third equine
0: category. I think we should recognize that the jackassery we often see around here um, is partly because of people mugging for short-term uh, camera
1: opportunities. But what kind of behavior fits this category? Is it questioning
2: about an important issue? Do you agree with me that it's important to accommodate uh, the sincerely held religious beliefs of all Americans?
1: Is it concern about the judge's record? There's at least a level of empathy that enters into your treatment of a defendant that some could view as beyond
0: what some of us would be comfortable with. Is it interrupting? So you're not going to answer my question?
2: No, I've answered your question in my answer. You haven't answered my question.
0: I'm sitting here asking you and you're declining to answer.
2: In that chart?
0: Okay, Judge, you said that before.
2: Is it
1: suggesting the witness is a liar? Do you really expect this committee to believe that you don't remember
5: what happened in this Hawkins case when it came back before you?
3: Yes, Senator, Senator I I do expect you to believe that's my testimony. Well, I don't find it credible, Judge. Is
1: it making things up? What's your hidden agenda? Is it to let violent criminals,
6: cop killers and child predators back to the streets?
1: The category is loosely defined as one in which the senator is rude or acts in bad faith to promote themselves or make a political point instead of honestly examining a judge's qualifications for the bench. For some, the entire hearing would fit in this category. Senator Cory Booker grew so exasperated, he tried to summon what had gotten lost in the questioning, that Jackson, whom the Senate had confirmed three times for previous jobs and whose character witnesses included prominent Republican judges, was the first black woman to be nominated to the Supreme Court.
3: You did not get there because of some left-wing agenda. You didn't get here because of some dark money groups. You got here how every black woman in America who's gotten anywhere has done By being uh, like Ginger Rogers said, I did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards in heels.
1: Senator Booker did not break the fever. The condition Senator Sass identified will continue to flower. A new term defined in the end the same way Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart famously defined pornography. You know it when you see it. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us.
7: Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H track, all wheel drive, and three row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all new Hyundai Santa Fe.
1: Welcome back to Face the Nation. We're joined now by Washington Post associate editor Bob Woodward and CBS chief election and campaign correspondent Robert Costa. These are the reporters responsible for that scoop about Clarence Thomas's wife's efforts to overturn the 2020 elections. Good morning to both of you. Thank you. Glad to have you here. Bob Woodward, I'll start with you. Uh, Congressman Kinzinger was not forthcoming. He uh, barely uh, admitted that these exist. Why are these texts so important? Well, because they they
9: come after the election is over and uh, the general rule and things like the Constitution and the law say there's going to be one thing that happens after the election is over. And that is the certification before Congress when the vice president, the president of the Senate presides. And so this uh, is—I'm sorry to go back to this. We were talking earlier about Watergate, but Watergate was about tampering with the electoral process at the front. Nixon and uh, his underlings mounted a massive sabotage and espionage campaign against the Democrats. But this is after the election, and people who believe in the Constitution and the law— would say, okay, it's over. You can go to court, but uh, you read when uh, Robert and I were reading these texts at the beginning, it was almost unbelievable that you would have somebody in Jenny Thomas's position say, quote others saying, uh, in war, uh, you know, there is no rule.
1: There are no rules that this is warfare. Well, it shouldn't be. And Bob Costa, this brings in another branch of government into this tangentially. I mean, she's married to a Supreme Court justice. So that's part of that's that's the other element of this as well.
10: What Bob Woodward and I have found is this campaign spearheaded by then President Trump that played out in the post-election period across all three branches of government in at least tangential ways. You had Congress working with President Trump to try to block the certification of president, that President-elect Biden at the time. You had the president pressuring state lawmakers. You had the spouse of a Supreme Court justice communicating with the White House chief of staff. And you had the executive branch doing everything possible to have a legal challenge that would maybe go all the way, as Trump said, to the Supreme Court. This was Trump pulling every lever of power. And one of those levers, it appears to be, was his own chief of staff at least communicating on legal strategy with the spouse of a justice.
1: I want to stay on the Supreme Court issue with you, Bob. One of your books is about the Supreme Court Chief Justice John Roberts is very concerned about judicial independence. He wrote at the end of last year in his letter from the chief justice, the judiciary's power to manage its internal affairs insulates the courts from inappropriate political influence and is crucial to preserving public trust. The idea that if the court is seen as political, its rulings won't have the weight in American life that it should. Well, he really has
9: grounds for being worried. Now, Justice Uh, Amy Coney Barrett, six months ago, went to the McConnell Center in Kentucky, which is the center Mitch McConnell, the leader of the Republicans, uh, set up. And she made a remarkable speech. Uh, She said, I want to prove to you that we are not a bunch of partisan hacks in the Supreme Court. And she said, justices all justices must be hypervigilant to make sure they're not letting personal biases creep into their decision since justices and judges are people too. So she made it very clear that this hypervigilance should be the condition in which justices operate. We now have a situation where the wife of a justice has gone on a crusade and has uh, said, this is warfare, do not concede. Uh, The White House chief of staff, Mark
1: Meadows himself said, this fight is good good versus evil. And you have an instance where the Supreme Court justice was overseeing cases related to January 6th and May again and didn't and didn't recuse himself. Uh, Bob Costa, I want to get your sense of these texts. Do they give us a flavor for the kinds of things the committee has what does this tell us about the work of the January Six Committee in terms of putting together this picture of what President Trump was doing and what those acting in his name were trying to do to overturn the election?
10: John, your interview with Congressman Kinsinger uh, referenced how they have Mark Meadows' text messages to a point, and they are frustrated that for at least the Thomas exchanges, uh, based on our reporting, they do end in late November. Uh, and where, where are the text messages, if any, from December or around January six? But at the same time, it's important to know. Note that based on our reporting, that the Meadows text messages do provide to a point a roadmap of sorts of some of the things that were being done by the White House Chief of Staff, then President Trump during this post-election period. They've also done hundreds of interviews. They have thousands of pages of documents from different people who are cooperating with the committee but they still feel in many ways they do not have enough. Steve Bannon has refused to cooperate. Mark Meadows has now refused to cooperate. So the question facing that Congressman Kinzinger and others is, where's the John Dean who's going to put the hand in the air and start outlining all of these different facets? You think there's
9: any John Dean around, Bob? There are always surprises as we find in this. And remember, the January 6th committee in a filing in California has said they have a good faith conclusion that Trump and people around him engaged in a full-fledged criminal conspiracy to overturn the election. They rule this is criminal and if you go back a hundred years to the Supreme Court, it was Chief Justice Taft, of all people, saying, uh, this, we're not going to let people meddle with things like the certification on January 6th, which is in the law. So much is hinging on the committee's effort. I, th- I think Robert and I found there... They're really working hard. They're talking to people that there is an aggressiveness and a sense of expanding the universe of likely witnesses.
10: But a real test is going to be, will they ask Ginny Thomas to appear first voluntarily? If they don't ask her to appear voluntarily, are they going to the full extent they can to find the truth? Or will they issue a subpoena? The challenges here is like any investigation, things go in different directions. Will you pursue all leads or not?
1: And Jenny Thomas is not just about what she may have said, but what she was on the listening end of. I mean, She has material w- w- that she can provide about what Mark Meadows was saying and others she was talking to.
10: We just don't have the full picture right. at this point about her relationship with Justice Thomas and his knowledge of her exchanges with the chief of staff. Well, we have a little bit more of the picture because of the two of you.
1: So thanks so much to both of you for being here. And we'll be back in a moment. We're joined now by Will Hurd. He's a former Republican congressman from Texas, a former CIA officer, and now the author of American Reboot. Congressman, welcome. Hey, it's a pleasure to be on. The book begins with a very exciting, I won't spoil it, but moment in your CIA career. So I want to use that intelligence to talk about intelligence. What does your intelligence background tell you about what's happening in Ukraine right now?
11: Look, right now, it tells me that um, some, something I learned in those almost decades as an undercover officer where I was responsible for recruiting spies and stealing secrets, and when it comes to our foreign policy, we want our friends to love us and our adversaries to fear us. And when you use that as a metric on looking at what's happening in Ukraine, Um, Our our allies, President Zelensky, is asking us to do more. Our adversaries, our enemies, Vladimir Putin, is launching cruise missiles into the western part of the Ukraine because he's not afraid that we're going to respond. We need to be doing more. And, and, And I think that because we can help prevent an incredible loss of life.
1: Quickly doing more meaning what?
11: Look, I think we should be giving them as much uh, weaponry as we can. Uh, what, what we don't know in the earlier segment you talked about is 20 MIGs going to be enough to do anything. Well, everybody underestimated the Ukrainians before this happened. Who knows what they're going to be able to do with those kinds of tools? And we have to be prepared to, to help them prevent significant loss of life.
1: The other piece of your expertise I want to tap is cyber. Mm. You write about it in the book. President Biden this week said to American business uh, leaders, be careful, be careful harden your targets more than you already have been. What could the Russians do?
11: Look, the Russians can do a lot of things. Uh, They could impact Um, water treatment plants we've already seen that happen in the united states last summer they could try to impact our grid Um, we saw in my home state of texas uh, the the grid you know uh, it was because the grid went down or almost went down because of because of weather issues but you can mimic that similar kinds of attack uh, through a uh, through a digital attack and so the the world is incredibly interconnected in increasing things like artificial intelligence is gonna be the future of cybersecurity, where you're gonna have bad bad AI versus good AI, and this is moving at a, at, a, at a significant speed.
1: Why hasn't the Russian cyber attack happened the way people expected?
11: Um, I think the, the Russians are not 10 feet tall. I think that's one of the things that, that we learned from this. They've, they thought that this campaign and, and this, this, um, this invasion of Ukraine would be going differently. Um, the fact that the FSB, which is responsible for a lot of their cyber activities, um, they're rounding some of them up and, and using them as scapegoats as, as why the, the attacks are going so poorly. So I think they've been consumed and they haven't been able to get to it.
1: All right, let's turn the wheel now and talk about your book. Mm -hmm. One of the arguments you make in your book is that the Republican Party needs to reach out to those portions of the electorate that haven't traditionally been Republicans. So with that in mind, as you watch the confirmation hearings of Judge Jackson this week, how do you think the Republican Party fared with its representatives questioning her towards the larger purpose of your book?
11: Well, look, I, I think what's 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 crazy here. This is a seminal moment. right? Yes, I disagree uh, with the judge's judicial philosophy, but she's obviously qualified. And the fact that she's, I think, the second most popular justice ever nominated to the bench, that should be that should be the story. All right, when it when it comes to this, of course, a handful of senators um, acted like uh, jokers in their in their in their testimony and, and they're asking questions, similarly other senators have done in in other um, nominations for su- Supreme Court justices. But my point in the book is that the Republican Party needs to start looking like America because we have a real opportunity. Republicans are going to take back the House in 2022. And we're primarily going to take back the House because of the incompetence of the Democratic Party. Imagine that instead of voting because voters think the other guys are so bad that they're voting for us because they believe in our ideas. We're going to see some of that happen in in my home state in South Texas, where you're going to see Latinos vote for Republicans in probably record numbers. So I want to press
1: on that theory. Your argument is essentially the Republican Party has to catch up with where America is going, a constituency different than the one that they support. And you refer back to the Republican autopsy after the 2012 loss. Donald and in that autopsy, they said uh, Republicans have to embrace comprehensive immigration reform. Stop sending the message that we only care essentially about white voters. Donald Trump heard that uh, and said, nuts, I'm going to run the opposite. And he won. And now, as you say, Republicans are ready to perhaps take over the House and the Senate. That seems like a pretty strong argument against, essentially, your argument.
11: Well, well, Donald Trump did won, win, but then he also lost. He lost the House. He lost the Senate, right? And so there, there was, there was, there was, and then, and then, if we look in twenty twenty, Joe Biden won, and he had absolutely no coattails because the public said, hey, we don't like some of these things the Democratic Party is going to. So yes, a, a good chunk of the Republican Party is still um, you know, a blindly loyal to, to President Trump, but it's not the supermajority. And this is the opportunity that we have. And this is where we need to be thinking about this in, in 2022 and the opportunities that we have in order, to, in order to grow and improve our electoral successes.
1: There is a question about the power that Donald Trump has in the party. You say the first thing that Republicans have to do is admit that the 2020 election uh, was legitimately uh, decided in favor of Joe Biden. That's not the majority position according to polls among Republicans.
11: Sure. But when I crisscross the, the, the country now and in, in, in promoting the, the book American Reboot, one of the things that I've learned, people say, yeah, let's get let's get beyond that. Let's let's move on. Uh, Joe Biden is the president. Right. Uh, let's start talking about the next thing. So 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 for, for me, uh, look, I'm talking about where we should be going. We are at a moment where 72% of Americans think the country is on the wrong track. And this is not new. This has been going on for some time. And what I'm trying to say is we don't have to accept the current trajectory. There's different ways of doing things. And I try to use my time from when I was in the CIA, in business, and in Congress to outline uh, a different strategy.
1: All right, Congressman Hurt, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment. We want to turn... (sighs) back now to the war in Ukraine and welcome the former U.S. ambassador to that country, Marie Ivanovich. She is the author of a new memoir, Lessons from the Edge. Good morning, Ambassador. Good morning. President Biden, three days in Europe, Brussels, and then went to Poland. What did you make of that visit?
6: I thought it was a hugely important trip where the president was able to demonstrate not only American leadership, uh, but uh, Western unity, uh, in this, uh, hugely important challenge that Russia has inflicted on Ukraine, but more broadly on the West.
1: He talked about unity. How fragile is that unity? Um, because it seems like everybody's saying all the right things. Um, how, how fragile is it? So fragile, the president must go and make a visit to keep it together.
6: I think one month in there was a symbolic effect But there were also a lot of uh, accomplishments that were cited um, during uh, the various summits. So this was NATO, but it was also the European Union. It was the G7. Uh, There were, and then uh, obviously the trip to Poland where he met with President Duda, as well as Ukrainian refugees, as well as the 82nd Airborne, and of course, importantly, the Ukrainian defense and foreign ministers. So I, I think a lot was accomplished there. Um, and a lot of announcements were made, you know, more um, more uh, humanitarian assistance, the 100,000 slots for refugees, um, more um, uh, uh, military groups going out to uh, Europe, and the list goes on.
1: The 100,000 uh, refugees that, that Biden said the, that America would take, how important is that in talking to Europeans who are the ones, I mean, Poland is taking the brunt of the refugees. How important is that in terms of showing that America is pulling its weight, for yeah, lack of
9: a better term. The,
6: the burden and being supportive. I think it's important, but I, um, honestly, my own opinion is that it's just a start. Um, because when you've got um, up to 10 million, uh, dis- and perhaps the numbers are even higher this morning, 10 million displaced people in, um, out, of, out of Ukraine, about 3.5 in, um, in Europe, 100,000 uh, doesn't begin to you know, really start to um, a- approach the kind of figures that we're probably going to need to show. That said, though, Many Ukrainian people aren't looking to come to the U.S. or even to Western Europe. They want to stay close because they want to go back and, and rebuild. I mean, it's really inspiring.
1: You have contacts there. You live there. You, tell me what you're hearing uh, from within Ukraine.
6: Well, they're, um, you know, they're kind of encouraging me. Uh, you know, when I express concerns and worry, uh, they're saying, don't worry, we've got this. We are going to keep on fighting. And they are. Uh, and they're asking for our help. Uh, And so just recently I got uh, an email from one of my former bodyguards who wanted, he said, you know, Madam Ambassador, you know I would never ask for myself, um, but I really, um, uh, I need uh, equipment for my team. I need, you know, medical kits, I need um, body armor, I need boots. And so I tried to hook him up with uh, some people who could provide that.
1: How do they read the statements by President Biden and other Americans who say, we're with you, we're with you, we're with you, except to the border?
6: Yeah. Well, you can imagine um, that on the one hand, um, perhaps uh, at a very high level, they understand uh, that we have uh, uh, Article Five um, responsibilities under uh, the NATO treaty. But on the other hand, they wish that we would do more. I think we are doing a lot. Um, But I think we need to keep on backfilling when it comes to security assistance, um, because the Ukrainians are using everything that we and other countries are providing. um, But we need to keep on backfilling it because it's it's being used.
1: As a career diplomat, how do you read, and your expertise is not just Ukraine, but Russia as well, how do you read this Donbass move from the Russians, the idea that the the public statement is they're going to focus on Donbass? Does that have an effect in terms of diplomacy? In other words, could some countries say, okay, well, it's not pretty, but we'll give them Donbass just so we can be done with this war?
6: Yeah, I think, so perhaps, um, but I think that what we've learned um, over the last month and a half or several months, if not the last uh, 20 years, is that we can't always trust what the Russians are saying. So they made that statement, and then a day or so later, they attacked Lviv in the far west of Ukraine, very far away from the Donbass. So I think we need to wait and see.
1: There is an incredibly prescient moment in your book where you talk about U.S. not really reading Vladimir Putin right and you predict this is before any of this happened quote we will someday maybe soon find ourselves in a serious confrontation in a context not of our choosing and not to our advantage so building on that platform how is the interpretation the West's interpretation or America's interpretation of Putin how are we getting him right at this moment and how should we think about the way he sees things
6: yeah you know, that is the question of the moment, isn't it? And I, I, I think it's hard to know. It was always hard to know, but especially now after COVID and the isolation that he finds himself in with just a very small group of advisors, people who've been with him, you know, since KGB, you know, St. Petersburg days. And um, there's just not, not a lot we know about what kind of advice he's getting or what he knows. Uh, but I do think that Putin is a man who uh, only understands strength. And so when you know, right now, the, the the Biden administration is trying to navigate this very narrow lane of supporting Ukraine on the one hand, standing up for our values and our interests, um, but also uh, doing the utmost not to expand the war. And when we look at that uh, as a positive thing, that this is restrained um, and um, positive, uh, I think sometimes um, perhaps Vladimir Putin looks at it as um, a sign of weakness. And so, again, this is a very difficult lane to navigate. And um, right now, I think the Biden administration is doing a pretty good job of it. But obviously, it, require, it requires constant calibration or, and recalibration in terms of what's going on on the ground.
1: I want to get to something you wrote about in your book. You talked about chauvinism at the State Department, how there were no female role models. Uh, this week, Madeleine Albright, the first uh, female secretary of state, died. You served under her. Um, tell me about that experience and how important it was to have a woman in that role.
6: Well, she, she you know, she broke that glass ceiling, and once you have one, uh, you, you're going to have another one. And she was a role model, I think, for many of us. I was very junior when uh, when she was Secretary of State, but she was a pioneer as the first woman uh, Secretary of State. She was um, as an immigrant to this country from. And in fact, I think a refugee from Eastern Europe, war-torn Eastern Europe. She was a strong voice uh, for democracy uh, and human rights and for Ukraine. And so I got to know her just a little bit. It was a privilege when she visited Ukraine while I was there as ambassador. And um, she, you know, very kindly took time out to speak with me and provide advice and encouragement.
1: All right, Maria Yovanovitch, Ambassador, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. And we'll be right back that's it for us today. Thanks for watching. Margaret Brennan returns next week on Face the Nation. I'm John Dickerson, and this has been Face the Nation. Today's guests were CBS News National Security contributor Michael Morrell, Illinois Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger, former Texas Republican Congressman Will Hurd, and former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine Marie Yovanovitch. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz, Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com, and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also on our
0: streaming network at noon and 4 p.m. Eastern every Sunday. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, you can listen early and ad free right now. By joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Catch
4: every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery+. Plus.
7: The Hargan women seem to have it all.
6: From the outside looking in, we we're, were blessed. My mom...